I decided some time ago it was time for us to spend some weeks in the book of the Psalms. The Psalms are so significant in the history of the church, a part of worship for Christians, a part of instruction because we learn so much about the character of God from the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to pray. They, they teach us how to walk. They, they teach us how to love God in very many ways. I found that some people naturally gravitate to the Psalms because they're poets at heart and the poetry of the book of Psalms particularly grabs hold of them whereas other people have to learn a love for the Psalms and if you're one of those I hope that these next few weeks as we pick a few Psalms I hope you experience it. This is a time of lament in our country. No matter what your uh, persuasion, there is lamentation. There is sadness at where we are. There is fear. There is frustration. Um, there are all kinds of messages going out. And it was tempting as I looked for this first psalm to try to address those. But as I stepped back and asked God to lead what I came to the conclusion that we needed to first be uh, given a new perspective. Uh, so today, in many ways, we're going to begin with what I would call a perspective psalm, a psalm that causes us to regain an appropriate perspective in our lives. It's, it is a psalm that is uh, beautiful. It is a psalm that is actually quoted in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. It is a psalm that uh, has been used in worship for many, many years, and yet it's not one of the most familiar of psalms. It's Psalm 96. When you turn to the Psalm 96, the first phrase is, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. And that's one reason it seemed like such an appropriate psalm to me. If you've ever read all of the Old Testament, one of the books that is often neglected and yet a treasure is the book of Lamentations. It's a, it's a book where the believing community lamented the hardships that they were going through. The southern kingdom of Judah had fallen to the Babylon, Babylonians and their temple had been destroyed. And it is a time of, of deep lament, sorrowful lament at the heartache that they experienced. Of course, the irony is that we know that Judah lost to the Babylonians because they refused to be obedient to God. They, they ignored what God had told them for centuries through the prophets, through their kings, through godly men and women, and yet the lamentation is just as real. Uh, we're in a period of a lot of finger pointing and, and accusations all directions through government and through our society and even among us as Christian friends. And, and it's easy to say these are difficult times because we deserve it. And we must ask ourselves anytime things are hard how we've contributed to them. We as a nation have, have neglected the issue of the African Americans for centuries and it has come to roost and it is our prayer and yours, I know, that, that we make progress anew to heal this in our land. Uh, but I found that most of the time when I am lamenting, I have contributed to the problems I'm in. And that makes, does not make the lament less real. In other words, just like Israel, I, I often will say, Lord, I, I sort of had this coming, but it still hurts so bad. And the irony is the grace of God is shown in that when we lament even our own guilt, there is yet God's grace. So here in this psalm, he says, sing a new song. 
And it made me think of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. In the middle of this long, beautiful lament, series of lamentations from the nation of Israel, it says, yes, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. See, even and maybe especially in the context of sadness and heartache and repentance, we, we need to turn to our God and sing a new song because his faithfulness, his compassion, his goodness is new every morning. It is so easy for us to lose hope in times of personal and national stress. It's so easy for us to become so focused on our heartache and our difficulty that, that we are overwhelmed for it, from it. But, but obedience and goodness come out of hope. It's when people lose hope that we so easily fall uh, away from doing what we could. And, and so the psalmist says, sing a new song. A song that reminds us of God's compassion. A song that reminds us of God's goodness. A song that reminds us of his faithfulness to us. We continue in verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Notice this is a psalm that looks beyond the nation of Israel to all nations. And that theme will come up. It is in many ways a prophetic psalm because it, it looks to the coming king, the Messiah, that is so much a part of the Old Testament theology. But as we look at it, we'll see that it looks beyond Jesus' first advent to his second advent, his second coming when he will reign on earth as is promised in the Davidic and New Covenants. As, and he will come and bring righteousness and justice. It is looking not only to the, when Jesus came the first time to offer salvation through his death on the cross, but the second time he will come when he brings justice and, and righteousness and, and meets that ultimate longing in our lives. And that is not just a message for some, it is a message for all. So seeing the Lord praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. In the midst of that expectation of what he will yet do, we are called upon to proclaim who he is and proclaim what he offers because the world so desperately needs him. The world so desperately needs his character. Uh, we, we so yearn for goodness and righteousness and peace, those things that, that are part of his character, that he's placed a longing in us for them, and, and, and the world so needs to hear that from us, which means we have to demonstrate it as well. He continues, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds, again, among all peoples. Notice his character and his deeds are all important. 
Uh, We can each remind people of how God has intervened even in the brokenness of our world and the sadness of our lives. When he has, has walked with us when we suffered injustice or he has walked with us when we caused injustice. He has, he has been with us no matter what the circumstances and we have found relief in his goodness when we could not find it anywhere else. For great is the Lord, verse 4, and most worthy of praise. He is be feared above all gods for the All the gods of the nations are idols, literally nothings. The gods of the nations are nothings, but the Lord made the heavens. And splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. This first section I called creation has its privileges because the emphasis of it is by virtue of being creator, God has authority over all of the earth. And all of the other idols, all the other things we place our trust and hope in, all the other things that we worship in whatever way, all the things that crowd God out of our heart are nothings. Now, we in the 21st century love to look down upon ancient peoples with their idols of wood and stone and metal because we don't do that. But the reality is anything that crowds God out of our heart in his rightful place has become an idol. Uh, God uh, alone is the heart of our focus and our worship. God alone is the one who teaches us the principles of what are right and wrong. God alone is, is that sovereign over all of our lives. And while we may not have idols like they had in the first century, we all have that tendency to crowd him out seeking other things. Whether it is our comfort, whether it is our confidence in our government, whether it's our confidence in our wealth, whether it's our confidence, whatever it is that causes us to look to that for our hope instead of God, then that in many ways has become an idol. And, and the psalmist says, he is God by virtue of the creator of all things. So splendor and majesty are his, and strength and glory are in his sanctuary, the place of worship. We intuitively understand that creation allows special rights. In science and technology, if you own a copyright, you created it, then you have certain rights to benefit from it financially, to have your name associated with it, and, and it is a major part of, of that whole world of business. We have attorneys at Grace who work in that area to ensure that people's rights for creator creating are honored. Uh, but I, I think that's an intuitive thing. I, I, Bear with me a little bit because sometimes I think like a child. Uh, I, it, have you ever played a game with a small child and the child invented the game? Uh, have you ever had a child come say, come play this with me? And, and you sit down to play it with them and, and, and they explain to you that it's a game that they made up. And what happens is you start playing and you think you've done something good and they say, no, no, no you still lose. And you think, wait, 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 wait. That's not the, it's my game, they'll tell you. In other words, one of the great joys with a child is having them instruct you that the one who creates is in control. In other words, intuitively, always understand that the one who creates is over. 
And yet we, we try to crowd God out of that role as creator God because if we acknowledge it, he interferes in so much of our lives. He has the right to question our motives. He has the right to judge us when we're wrong. He has the right to punish us when we sin. He has the right to grip grace according to his sovereign will. And, and we can never truly worship God unless we come to him in that sense of humility. So the psalmist first reminds us that as creator, God has privileges. He, he deserves to be worshiped. He deserves to be obeyed. He deserves to be praised. And all of the other things that we put in his place are inadequate. Can I just remind you, there are two ways to have a God. One uh, uh, is to create your own. And when we create our own, we, in essential, are idolaters. But, but any of us who can fall into the trap of, of creating a God that meets our needs. The problem is then we are actually God and he is our servant. Scripture calls us to something else, and that is to find the God who exists. And the, the Old Testament and the New all remind us that God's right to sovereignty is rooted in the fact that he created us. And even we as Christians sometimes play the game of trying to tell God what rights he has, as if we get to choose what kind of God he does, it will be. And when we do that, we are essentially falling into idolatry. The, the sole response to the sovereign God is to listen to him because he is God. In verses 7 through 9 is an emphasis of God as king, and we are all called to respond to his glory. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of the nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in, splend in splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. When, when we come to the realization of who God is, there is a recognition of what he deserves. And he deserves glory. He deserves worship. He deserves honor. He deserves our gifts. He deserves splendor. And, and ultimately, we will tremble before him. Some respond badly to that. They say, wait, wait, wait. I, I, why would I tremble before God? He loves me. I, this I know all the Bible tells me so. Uh, but may I remind you that even though you love something deeply, when it has absolute authority, you still have an appropriate fear. My father was a simple man. He, he never went to college. He didn't graduate from high school till later because they couldn't afford glasses for him. He, he scratched out a living most of his life. He had very low expectations for what life would give him. Uh, he, he, he was a man who just was grateful that God in his providence had given him a wife and then one child such as it was. And, and there was just a simplicity to him and I, I trusted his love absolutely and completely. But I was still a little fearful of him. Not, not, not in the sense that I believed that he would harm me, but in the sense that the virt by virtue of being my father, by virtue of his character, by virtue of his honesty, I, 
I had a healthy fear. And his displeasure was at times overwhelming because when I disappointed him and I thought of all he had done and all the ways he had loved and the, the consistent he, integrity, not perfection, he certainly wasn't a perfect man, but the, the goodness that I saw toward me as his son, in spite of all of that, I still had a healthy fear of him. And, and that's one of the reasons we worship is to be reminded of the greatness of God and our, our need to submit out of fear to him, not to treat him as if he is um, a buddy down the street, but that he is the almighty God. And we all need to be reminded of his greatness and his goodness. And that gives us hope. That, that elevates him more than just someone we talk to when we're lonely, but someone who in his power and his greatness and his glory can provide hope to us when everything else is so bad. So the psalmist says, uh, we all should worship him, ascribe to him glory because of who he is, because when we do, we're reminded of how to respond to the life around us. The final section says to anticipate his coming judgment. And here, Having started with the emphasis of him as creator and then secondly as emphasis as king, now it looks to him as the judge. Again, notice, say among the nations. We sometimes treat the Old Testament as if it was the Israelites were insular and unconcerned about the world around them, yet the literature of the Old Testament had a constant awareness of the needs of others. Uh, the nation of Israel was created to be a testimony to the world around them. It, it's, it's not just for us. It wasn't just for them. There is always a gospel command in the message of Scripture. So say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord for he comes and he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. We can rejoice because that king who is worthy of worship will ultimately bring justice. We can rejoice because the one whom we love knows how to unravel the Gordian knot of human sin. We, we, we have such a hard time finding the way of justice at times because we ourselves are so broken. We, we are so used to sin in our own lives that it's hard for us to see it. Uh, again, my illustrations are childlike today. Work with me here. Uh, this will come a shock to you, but, but I'm short. And, and throughout my life, when I bought pants, they are always too long. And, and it's just the way it is. All of my pants, when I buy them, are too long. And I'm just used to it, especially blue jeans. Uh, I'm from Texas. In Texas, we wear our jeans too long. That's what Lyle Lovett says in a song. It's just, it's just part of the truth of our lives. So not too long ago, my lovely wife thought she would do me a favor by cutting off some jeans so they were the right length. I hate them. 
I hate them because they're not the, they are, I am so used to jeans being so long that I'm not comfortable with them being the right length. They just, I, they feel like high water pants. They just, I just feel embarrassed that my ankles are obvious. It's just something that causes me incredible discomfort because I'm just used to pants being too long. That's, that's the life I live with pants that are too long. Now, every time some of you see me, you're going to look at my pants. Get over it. Don't, don't go there. But, but the reality is, the point I'm making is that in my life, because I'm short, I'm just used to that. I don't notice any other way. You know, that's the way we are about sinfulness in our lives. Uh, we don't see it so often uh, because we're just used to it. It's one reason the first year or two of, two of marriage can be so exciting because suddenly we get another set of eyes who helps us see things that we thought were just perfectly fine and they remind us, no, not so much. This is maybe wrong. And one of the blessings of coming up close to Christ in our lives is having his eyes point to us and show us what could be better and remind us how we could repent and be better. But it takes real wisdom. Uh, we, struggle, we have no righteous judge among us. We, we do our best with our judicial system. We do our best in our church. We do our best in our family. But as a father, as a pastor, I'm constantly aware of how unable I am to give perfect righteousness. I've been reading through the Old Testament and, and read again the story of Solomon after having asked for just uh, wisdom from God. And the first demonstration of the supernatural wisdom he's given is the two women who bring in one child in an a debate over whose baby it really is. And to illustrate how God had demonstrated his answer to Solomon's prayer by giving him supernatural wisdom. Solomon says, give me a sword and let's cut the baby in two and we'll give one half to each. And obviously the real mom protested and said, I'd rather give up my child than experience that. And, and for me, that has become a metaphor for so much of life. I, I, and I pray that God would give me the wisdom to know how to discern the indiscernible. How to, how to work through complex problems to see God's truth. Now, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you see something, and it's just so obviously wrong, there's no question in your mind. And, but but the, the more complexity of the number of people, the harder it is to come to those kind of problems. We're at a time when I believe most Christians will agree on what is right and wrong, but, but we aren't hearing each other about how we can address those issues. We're responding so much out of fear and anger and everything else that, that and some of it appropriate, but, but we should also seek the wisdom of God who can teach us how to judge with equity. And, and when we don't get that kind of justice, when, when it falls short, we can ultimately look to the fact that one day God will bring justice. I personally have a theory that we in America have been so, for the most part, remarkably blessed. We have received so much from the hand of God that, that we sometimes take justice and goodness for granted. Uh, we think it's normal. I, it, when you travel to other places and you go to parts of the world where you find people that have never 
experienced any hope of justice. There's no claim of justice in their society. It is solely by virtue of power or ideologies that are made up by humans, and, and there is a hopelessness in that. Part of the great joy as America is as imperfect as we are, we yet have hope that it can be better. And that, that hope, I believe, is ultimately related to the fact that, that historically, imperfectly, we have had the sense that there is a God who will bring justice. And, and the psalmist reminds us that our new song comes not from the good around us, but from the goodness in God. And, and his goodness demonstrates that he will ultimately bring justice. This psalm reminded me of a sermon in the book of Acts. In Acts, the Apostle Paul, in chapter 17, famously goes to the great city of Athens. And in verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He, he looked around him at the world and saw how terribly broken it was. Now, their idolatry oftentimes included temple prostitution and all kinds of things that would be so offensive to a Jewish man like Saul and, and Paul. And, and so uh, he walked into that world of Athens, that incredibly great city, and yet was inundated with the sights and sounds of the injustices, of the dishonesty, of the brokenness, of the unrighteousness, and the idolatry. So Acts 17, 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, why is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. It's interesting, I don't think Paul's problem was as much that he was unclear, it was that they weren't ready to hear. So they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Herakopagus, and where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And princes, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and about and listening to the latest ideas. They, they loved this stuff. It was like a, a student union at a university where people sit and talk ideas they've heard about and they exchange them and, and find such joy. And Paul stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I have even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you're worshiping is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world. The scripture's emphasis about who the God of Israel is, is that he is the creator God. Nations had gods. Families had gods. Peoples had gods. And Israel always came back to the fact that we worship the God of all creation. You can see it in the book of Jonah. You can see it in the prophets. You can see it in the history. He is the God of creation, as the psalmist has just said. And the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands like those that I see around me, 
I think he was saying. And he's not served by human hands as if he needs anything because he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Notice that, that Saul emphasizes that all of humanity comes under the same God. We are all children of God. We all have value before God. We all are important to God. Christ died for all human beings and we are all one in his creation. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps he'd reach it out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring created by him, we shouldn't think that the divine being is gold or silver or stone or an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. The man that is described at the end of Psalm 96. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with the justice by the man he has appointed. He has been given proof of this to all men. How? By raising that man from the dead. Psalm 96 walks, the apostle's sermon walks along Psalm 96's outline as he reminds people that the God that Israel worshipped and the God that he Preach was the God who created all things and therefore all humanity must submit to him. And that that same God will ultimately judge and bring justice. But Paul fills in the last blank. That king, that creator, that judge has been demonstrated through his resurrection from the dead. It, it looks to the hope that we can only have in Christ. And Christ has demonstrated who he is and what he will do. His character, his power, his authority, and his coming judgment by the virtue of the fact that he overcame death. Something no human has ever been able to do. And by overcoming death, he demonstrates he has authority even over that which vexes us. And all humanity will kneel before him. And the call of the gospel of the book of Psalms as well as the New Testament is that when we see him coming, we fall in worship and embrace the grace that he offers. This is a time of lamentation. This is a time when we have sadness over what we see in the world around us. And like you, I yearn before God for him to bring justice. I yearn for him, by God, to, to bring peace and, and to bring uh, a healthy world to us. I, I yearn for God to demonstrate his character in a new way. But scripture teaches that ultimately comes in Christ. And, and when we become exasperated and exhausted with the reality that it doesn't come here now, the psalmist and the apostles would say, but don't forget that the righteous judge will come and he will judge all men. 
all women, all humanity will submit to his perfect standard. Like you, I, I, I get discouraged with how broken our world is. Uh, last night as I was studying again, I, I, I made the mistake of looking at Facebook and saw posts by people, fellow Christians, that broke my heart. Just so tragic and sad. And you say, Lord, if I understand that our government can be broken. I understand that I can be broken. I, it's just so hard when you're reminded how broken we all are. And the psalmist says, but one is coming. One is coming, and, and his righteousness and justice is pure. And he is faithful to his people. We are called upon to do what we can in this earth, to represent God, to proclaim his gospel, as the psalm says. But we are also reminded that our hope and our encouragement ultimately only comes from the one who is perfect. Because the world will always disappoint. I, as we wrestle through this, may I encourage you to take a break from time to time from the news. To take a break from time to time from all that you hear and go back to the character of God. Because that's, that's our hope. It's, it's not found in me. It's not found in you. We, when we're honest, we are as much a part of the problem in some ways as anything else. But, but it is in the goodness and righteousness of God that we find hope. And ironically, it's in the goodness of righteousness of God that we learn what to hope for. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would cause us each to see ourselves more accurately in our need for you and your righteousness. Cause us each to look not to idols that we've created, but look solely to you for our hope. And cause us each, in the midst of the discouragement in which we live, in midst of the frustration with all the brokenness, to, to find our hope in the one who will judge. Thank you that your compassions are new every day, that your faithfulness is always fresh. Encourage us by your character as we seek to serve you in a broken world. It's in Christ's name. Amen.